0: Greetings, Asbury community. Uh, I long to see you all face to face, but I hope that you know how much I want to be with you. And I'm so happy we have this opportunity for this last part in the series on the means of grace. And may the Lord uh, just bless us in this time together as we seek to uh, look at and exposit uh, the text which is read Romans 12, 1 to 2. Let's pray together. Lord, bless this uh, sermon uh, Lord, I'm not, I don't want to just speak to a little camera here, but I want to speak to the hearts and lives of every person hearing this on Facebook and on the on the on our site. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bob Mumford once told the story of a dream he had, and in the dream he saw his Bible uh really, really just blown up in in these bizarre ways. There are certain pages that were just massive pages. They were just huge, and were underlined and highlighted, and some pages were like tiny, like little postage stamps. And you know how in the Bible, whenever there's a, a vision or a dream that sometimes you know a person will say to the Lord or to the angel, "What does this mean?" Mumford said, "I didn't need to ask the Lord what it meant. I knew exactly what it meant." It was, the Lord was saying to him, "You know, Bob, you're a pastor, but boy, you certainly do love to preach on certain texts of Scripture, and so many others that you you ignore. They go, you know, un, untouched, unexegeted, unpreached. And it was really a reminder to preach the whole Word of God, and I know that all of us, oh my goodness, we can all hear that dream, can't we?" because there's certain texts we just love to preach on, love to see and talk about, and there's so many texts which we just don't ever think about or read. And so this text this morning, Romans 12, 1-2, it's got to be one of the most familiar texts of Scripture in the Bible. It's familiar, it would be one of those massive ones, you know, in our dream. Um, and yet, even though we know it so well do we really know it in its context do we really understand how this particular these verses fit into the larger context because if there ever were verses that really served as like the seam between two parts of a book it's this one i mean this is remarkable how much this particular uh, uh verses that therefore really is a seam to an earlier part of romans 1 to 11 which really lays out the gospel and all of its glory and vitality And then the second part of Romans 12 to 16, which really lay out much more the ethical implications of all this for for our lives. So let's take some time to look at Romans 12, uh, 1 to 2, and just basically go through and and see if we can not explore it in in a more uh, in-depth way. Now it opens up with this word, therefore. Now, whenever you, you know, hear the word therefore or see the word therefore, you always ask, what is it therefore? What is it there for? Why do we have that word? Well, we have to go back and ask ourselves, what is the, the context which leads us to the point when we read this verse in Romans 12? So let's think about this. What is the therefore therefore? Well, this is part of Paul's expansive vision. And I want to just, before we you know, delve into that vision, I want to just stop for a minute and just thank God for this unbelievable, unmatched exposition of the gospel, which has had such a tremendous impact on the, the history of the church. I mean, the book of Romans is a book that is just uh, enormous in its implications. I and mean, think about it. In year 386, it was Augustine out there in the garden, who heard those words, tole lege, tole lege. And he opens up, what? He opens up Romans 13, 13 and 14. And it was that text from Romans that transformed his life and gave us one of the great bishops of the church. It was in 1519 when Martin Luther was in the Black Cloister Tower when he opened up the other end of Romans, Romans one seventeen. He read those words, the just shall live by faith. And Luther was transformed. He, he, he says he felt like that the, the gates of heaven itself were opened. And he felt angels descending upon him as, as if he was born again. This is the power of the book of Romans. Uh, think about also this, uh, this book is intertwined with our own history as Wesleyans. Remember, it was John Wesley went down to Aldersgate on May 24, 1738. And it was there that he heard Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And it was there that his heart was strangely warmed and was I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given me that my sins, even mine, were taken away. And I was delivered from the law of sin and death. This is part of our story, and this was part of the story of the great evangelical awakening, or the great awakening that we celebrate now happened and it was sparked by the book of Romans. Even in the 20th century, it was, it was a Karl Barth, the 20th century uh, theologian who was reading uh, he, was, he was involved in a you know typical liberal course of study in Germany at that time. He was being taught all of the uh, horrific presuppositions of liberal uh, Christianity. and suddenly, one night he read the Book of Romans, and it rocked his world. It rocked his world. And he later republished that famous uh, uh, commentary, Der Roman Brief. And that Der Roman Brief was so powerful and it exposited in such great clarity the gospel that Carl Adams said when it came out, like the, you know, the whole kind of landscape of Protestant liberalism at that time, it said, Karl Barth's um, Der Roman Brief. Drop like a bombshell on the playground of the theologians. I love that quote. He dropped like a bombshell on the playground of theologians because he was dropping a, a new fresh vision of the gospel once again that came from the book of Romans. I could go on and on, by the way. William Tyndale, N.T. Wright of our own day, has said that Romans was the turning point which transformed their lives and gave them a new theological vision. So when you look at the context of this, uh, there are just few books that really have this. And so when you see the word "Therefore," and you ask, "What is the therefore, therefore, you want to go back and' going to capture what has happened in the previous 11 chapter in Paul's you know, glorious exposition of this uh, gospel in, in Romans. Well, it's in these chapters that we learn, for example. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there's none righteous, not even one. All those texts that Paul brings together in the first few chapters of Romans—that we're all saved by grace through faith, Romans three, through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All that comes through Romans. This is—that's what the therefore is there for—to recall that great exposition. We learned in Romans 1 to 11 to embrace Abraham as our father of faith and who showed us to trust in God and to not trust in ourselves just as he was up in Mount Moriah with a you know a knife in one hand and a promise in his heart. Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what the therefore is there for. Uh, Romans 5 brings us in that great truth that we are uh, full participants in adam in adam we all sinned we all rebelled against god but christ comes as the the second adam as the new adam inaugurating the new creation and we're now participating and are called to participate not just in the old adam which we all are born into but the new adam the new humanity in jesus christ we're no longer in adam but in christ this is all part of paul's exposition in Romans that Christ inaugurating not the old creation under the first Adam but the new creation under the second Adam and just as through the one man we were all made sinners now to the one man we're all made righteous I mean these are these great texts that's what the therefore is therefore Paul talks about how in Romans that we have through faith and united with him in his death Remember that whole baptism section where he says, you know, we've been buried with him through baptism into death just so that as we're united with him in his death, we will be united with him in his resurrection. In other words, we are recapitulating with Christ the whole death and resurrection that he experienced on our behalf. That's what the therefore is there for. Paul reminds us that Jesus came out of Egypt fulfilling and and, uh, reflecting the whole history of Israel Jesus recapitulates the whole of Israel's life and he fulfills the hopes and promises of Israel. That's what the therefore is there for. He now comes as a new Moses leading a new people, not just the Jews, but Paul says men went from every tribe, every tongue, every people to an even greater promised land. As this new Moses, he fulfills all the law. He becomes a new lawgiver, not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it and enabling us to live out even a deeper law, not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human uh, uh, hearts. Whereas Paul says, not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. This is the, the transform. This is, by the way, Wesley's redirected heart. The law had produced death in us again and again, we're told in Romans 7, but in the obedience of Jesus Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves of righteousness. See, that's what the therefore is there for. Paul also tells us that he becomes the high priest. He he is both priest and sacrifice. Christ becomes God's suffering servant. He, he bears all the lament of the world and the brokenness of the world, think about all the COVID 19 brokenness, which is all over the world, the signs of death and of suffering, and yet Christ bears it all in the cross. This is the power of the gospel, and we're seeing in Jesus Christ as he walks among us. We're seeing what what we kind of, I think, somewhat some way maybe clumsily we call the God man, but it doesn't, doesn't do it justice, does it? You know, we also use the, the term the theanthropic man. But when, when, when Christ walks among us, what the early church is trying to capture is we're seeing God like we've never seen him before. We never saw God like this. We saw him, you know, in the, in the, under the mist of time at, in, in Mount Sinai, you know, the, the thunder and smoke. But now we see him unveiled face to face. We see God like we've never seen him. But also, and this is the point that Paul would make to us, we see man what Meaning mankind, humanity. We see man like we've never seen him. You see, Christ not only shows us, reveals what God is like. And that's, of course, what all our songs are about. You know, that in Christ, we see what God is like. But let's never forget that in the gospel, Jesus is showing us what we are to be like. What it meant to walk in the image of God, truly unmarred, reflecting as image bearers in the world. This is the power of the incarnation, seeing God face to face. God like we never saw him, man like we never saw him. Because Remember, the word image, we thought the image of God in Genesis. That, of course, is this glorious revelation right there in the dawn of creation when God breathed into us and created us in his image. But you know that the phrase image of God does not appear after the book of Genesis in the entire Old Testament. It drops away. We, we know it's there in creation. We know it's this huge doctrine at the dawn. We are creating the image of God. But suddenly idolatry and the marred image takes over and the, the idol uh, image becomes the, 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 the dominant theme of the Old Testament. We've gone after false images, falses. But suddenly in the New Testament, There's this explosion that happens where Jesus Christ comes as once again the image of God. And Paul exposits that, that Jesus Christ is the full image of God made manifest, the glorious re-imaging or re-mirroring of God into the world. And we, therefore, become part of that as we are in Christ. And we now once again reflect the true image of God. That is what that therefore is therefore Jesus Christ, the promise, the keeper of the promise. He's the lawgiver and the law fulfiller. He's all of these things. He is king. He is fulfilling the Davidic promises. You know all of that also is there in Romans that he is the one who sits not on an earthly throne but at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as the resurrected Lord, enabling us as his as his spirit empowered sons and daughters to cry out. Abba, Father, that's part of Paul's theology. We're destined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what the therefore is there for. Because the glory that's to be revealed in us is not worthy compared to that future glory. All of our present suffering is nothing, Paul says, compared, or what we think is glory here. All of it's nothing compared to the glory revealed to us. I know right now in this time, we're going through a suffering time. We're going through challenges. But Paul is saying whatever suffering we're going through, it's nothing compared to the glory that revealed to us, the full redemption of our bodies. And like Paul says in Romans 8, we're finally getting Romans 8 now, all of creation is groaning. All of creation groans. And all of creation is awaiting its redemption. If COVID-19 teaches us anything, is that the world is broken. The world is still longing for redemption. Things are no, we can't just organize ourselves through governmental action and other ways into a, a society which is just and perfect and harmonious. It requires God's inbreaking of the kingdom. It's the only hope for a broken, lost, lost world. And Jesus fulfilled it all. Sacrifice, priesthood, law, kingship, suffering servant, all meet together in the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the great theological vision of Paul in Romans 1 to 11, and we could go on, but the whole point is when Paul says here, therefore, this is not a throwaway word. It's meant to, uh, it's an IBS word. It's one of these great words which, which summons before us all that he said in Romans 1 to 11, and now he wants to plead with us and urge us in this passage here. I, therefore, I urge you, He's asking us, this is a great Wesleyan word, I urge you for nothing less than the full orientation of our entire being, heart, mind, and body to the worship of the true and living God. This is why worship is a means of grace. This text is a text about worship because worship brings us into the presence of the triune God. There is no greater means of grace than that. That is what all the means of grace are designed to do, to bring us into into the, to the presence of the triune God and that's what these two verses gloriously summarize. It, 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 I love the fact that it's a, it's a hinge. It captures on one hand, it captures all that has gone before us. After all, what is the gospel but the mercies of God? That's the summary of the whole gospel in view of God's mercy. That's the gospel. And then, of course, how do we see that mercy in the face of Jesus Christ and how we're called to live? So the whole gospel, in many ways, is captured in this uh, first phrase, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy because the gospel is nothing less than the mercy of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Now, what is our response to God's mercy? Well, it says right here, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now here we see Paul's, uh, what we call theology of the body. Paul is acknowledging that our bodies are the place where God transforms us because, see, God fashioned our bodies for the purpose of the means of grace. You see, God knew at creation that someday he would send his son into the world to redeem us. So he actually fashioned our bodies, knowing full one day that he himself would come into our worlds. That means our, into our world. Our bodies are the fashioned, perfect receptacle that someday would uh, bring the incarnation. So in some ways, our bodies are icons or pointers back to uh, the the original creation It's also icons of Christ's incarnation. It's icons of Christ's resurrection. All these things are what it means to be bearers in our bodies of the image of God because we are in the image of God. We are designed to reflect him. Now, when we talk about us in our bodies in this kind of representative capacity, we use the term icon. It's a strange word, but an icon simply means a, a physical pointer, to a spiritual reality. It's like a symbol, an icon is a tangible pointer to a spiritual reality or spiritual mystery. So the body is what makes visible that which is spiritual. So all the means of grace, think about it, all the means of grace we explored this whole year are actually happen in the body. Think about it, your body is baptized. Your body uh, takes the Eucharist. Your ears hear the word of God. Your feet and hands serve the poor. Your tongue prays. I I go on and on and on. All the means of grace are conveyed in and through the body. That's why your body is an icon. And we're told to make this and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when Paul says here in this passage that we're going to be a living sacrifice, it should really... um, It should really strike you as a remarkable phrase. It's one of the great phrases of scripture—a living sacrifice. Because sacrifice means death, right? I mean, we can't even imagine how much the ancient world was framed by sacrifice, and we associate it, of course, with the the Jewish world and you know the blood of bulls and goats and all of that. But the whole ancient world was framed; all pagan worship was framed by sacrifices. So, sacrifice is integral to the the kind of ancient—excuse me—ancient world's mentality. And so for Paul to say, no, this is a different kind of sacrifice. This is a living sacrifice that we are, of course, we lay our lives down before Christ. But by dying to ourselves, we get brought into a, a new life that's even much greater than anything we could possibly imagine. This is that great uh, living sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice. And this, by the way, is a theological use of the word living. We become Alive in Jesus Christ, fully alive, like we've never known before, a sanctified sacrifice, which is Paul says here, holy and pleasing to God. Now, sometimes we think about worship. He said, This is our, this is your spiritual act of worship. We think of worship, you know, like, well, this would happen. We go to church or come into Esther's chapel and praise God, look forward to that day again. But the point is when we gather together, even on Zoom, we gather together as an act of worship. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't mean any less than that. But Paul is taught something deeper than that. It's about going beyond that to our whole lives being a, an, an act of worship. Uh, when you embrace sanctification and the redirected heart, all of this are examples of our worship to God and our lives before God. That's why he says in verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is that word. Remember that word uh, metamorpho? This is the word we'll get a metamorphosis from. Don't be, you know, Sukai uh, Majidzo. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He is conscious to this amazing kind of what it means to be the transformed icons of the new creation. We're to embody the new creation in the present. And Paul wants to really draw, I think, a pretty dramatic contrast here between what he's describing here in Romans 12 and what he described in Romans 1, 22 to 32. Remember back in Romans 1, he had a very vivid detail of the life of the ungodly, and he actually portrayed what we might call anti-worship. See, here he's talking about true spiritual worship. But in that anti-worship, in that text, he says... And uh, the, the rebellious world has given themselves up. They have a degraded heart, a degraded body and a degraded mind. And God has God given you up to this rebellion. This means that God is going to consign you to the consequences of your actions. Now we don't talk about that very much, but it's actually a very important doctrine in Scripture that, that God sometimes, if we have a, uh, we're intent on rebelling against Him, in heart, and body, a degraded body, degraded mind, you know, and Paul has all those things, how we, you know, we give our bodies over to degraded passions and all the, rest, all that whole text. The God sometimes says, okay, okay, uh, I'm gonna give you over to that. And even that, please hear it, is an act of God's mercy. Because God, in his mercy, sometimes allows us to come face to face with the consequences of our own decisions so that we might come to our senses remember the prodigal son you you know you go out you do all these things on the on in the wild prodigal country but yet you come to your senses you get awakened to the love of god in jesus christ and this is what part of what paul is saying that Romans 12 is the positive vision where our bodies are glorious living ac- icons, living sacrifices. Our minds are renewed. Our hearts are set and reflexed. All of the brokenness of Romans 1 is now reversed in this hinge few verses of Romans 12, where we now have the renewed mind, the, the, the redirected heart, the, the, uh, the heart and life and mind that's all now fully captivated by the gospel and that which is perfect and pleasing. Uh, This is the summary of the whole gospel in this little captured verses here. And it should, of course, fill the whole frame of our lives as we lean into holiness, as we embrace the sanctified life. And that's part of what uh, it's hoped and prayed that this text does for us. So worship here does not stop when Jessica gives one of her famous benedictions, as much as we long for that. That's really where worship starts, isn't it? You know, we come out of church, out of our fellowship, we think we have been to worship, but actually we're going into worship, aren't we? We're going into a life of living sacrifices where our minds are now conformed to Christ, our hearts are redirected, our speech, all that we are becomes part, our bodies are focused now on following Christ. This is the vision that that, uh, Paul puts forth here. So we say worship is a means of grace. We're not simply isolating a segment of what we do on Sunday morning, but we mean that your entire life is an act of worship. Your entire, all your affections, all of your thoughts, everything is be captivated and requisitioned for his great purposes. And next uh, academic year, we're going to have a whole focus on the discipled life. We're gonna explore all this in much more detail. Let me close with a quick story by D.L. Moody. You know, you may have heard it said that uh, at one point, D.L. Moody once said, The world has scarcely seen what can be done through a man and woman whose heart and life and affections have been completely turned over, holy, and consecrated completely unto Jesus Christ. So Moses, uh, uh, Moody heard this and he said, You know, Lord, I aim to be that man. I aim to be that man. I want your prayer to be, whether you're graduating and going out from this place or whether you are returning and preparing for ministry, I want you to say to the Lord, I aim to be that man. I aim to be that woman who is wholly consecrated to the Lord as a living sacrifice we are no longer conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind and your body and your heart to fully follow him. May God bless you. And I hope and pray this series on the means of grace has helped you to build new avenues where God can convey his grace in our lives and transform us all more into likeness of Jesus Christ. Praise be unto him. Amen.